0: He lives. You see, we don't worship a dead Jew. Our Savior is is alive. He's in the world today, no matter what men may say. We are in our seventh week of quarantine. Quarantine meaning 40 days. We've been looking at a bunch of different 40-day events in Scripture Uh, And we've looked at what God was teaching people, where God was guiding them, where he was leading them, how he was changing people with 40 days, 40 days of rain, 40 days of repentance, 40 days of relying on the word of God, 40 days of resisting a a humiliating taunt from from an enemy, 40 days of rest as we draw near to God amidst our exhaustion, But in all of those 40-day events, there is none so meaningful in Scripture as the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension when he was taken back up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's a period of time where Jesus would show up and give many convincing proofs of his resurrection as well as clarifying what the kingdom of God was supposed to be about. In the book of Acts, we see then amazing things that then happened after those 40 days. Uh, wonderful things that were accomplished by the early church. People being saved by the thousands. People being healed of diseases and freed from prison. Uh, miracles taking place over and over uh, from, cir- from circumstances that looked hopeless. In the book of Acts, we see the church. We see the body of Christ marching on proclaiming the good news with boldness in the face of unimaginable persecution. And and, and you begin to wonder, what happened? What happened? What would take a ragtag group of followers of a Jewish rabbi, once so afraid of the Jewish authorities, how did they find strength to become the most powerful force on the face of this planet? See, that's the power that we see in the 40 days after the resurrection. The church gaining this strength and this confidence in knowing that what they believed about Jesus was real. And it mattered as they saw what it was going to play out like and what it was going to look like as they received their marching orders from the Lord. What is true for the early church church? is essential also to our faith as well. It, it must be true for us today. You see, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is what makes your faith different than any other faith in the history of the world. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Which means we're just spinning our wheels here today. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Why? Because you're still in your sins. <laughs> so you see how absolutely essential it is to be shown, convincing proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And the resurrection was indeed fact and not fiction. See, the, the resurrection is absolutely crucial, essential to Christianity. Everything that we believe stands or falls on this truth. Now, you you might think, well, you know what? There's some great philosophy in Jesus' teachings. Uh, I can live by them, even if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'd still be a Christian, some might say, because I I appreciate the faith and the hope and and the love that he taught, all of these things that Christianity offers. Folks, let me tell you a very, very startling truth. If Jesus is still dead, there is no faith, there is no hope, and there is no love. The 40 days between resurrection and ascension is the most crucial time for believers. Why? Because it's in that period of time when everything became a reality and it began to produce results. And it commanded a responsibility for you and I when we claim to be believers. So we're going to open up our Bibles today to one verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Acts 1, 3. Luke writes this. After Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, there's our quarantine, and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's it. Very short, but very powerful. Let's break it down. First of all, what we see in that one verse is resurrection reality. Luke tells us that he showed up and gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. I'm so glad that our God does not just demand dumb, blind faith. That, 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 he, that, that he, he doesn't want us to come to him in a faith that offers no concrete, credible evidence. Now, I understand there will always be elements of our faith that we'll just have to trust. We just have to trust when the Bible says things that we don't understand at times. But I know that it takes way more faith to be an atheist than, than it does to actually believe that there is a God and that he speaks to us through his word. As you look at the resurrection... There's a lot of people who would love to discount the resurrection account as just a fairy tale. But these 40 days that Jesus shows up to give many convincing proofs make it actually very difficult to be an atheist. Eyewitness reports are so important in this regard because people are skeptical. They say, well, we can't believe their story because they were his followers. They wanted it to be true. But I want to. Share with you some pretty amazing evidences here. First of all, you've got to look at how these men were changed. Okay, They'd seen something that changed them. That's the power of their eyewitness testimony. Because before the resurrection, these guys were confused, conceited, hot-tempered, weak in faith, lacking courage, and opportunistic. But after, you know, after following Jesus for three years, one disciple denied that he even knew Jesus for fear of his life. One disciple betrayed Jesus to his enemies. And the rest of them, all except for one, would fear for their lives so much that they abandoned Jesus and forsook him at the very time that he needed their support. These guys didn't seem like the most spiritual of men before the resurrection. But by the time the church begins in Acts, we see these guys now risking everything to declare that Jesus was alive. And they were doing it in the very city where Jesus had been executed. So their claims and their refusal to withdraw their claims, under, even under threat of death, gives strength to their eyewitness accounts. Because if they had made it up, if they had made it up, why suffer? Why die for something that you knew to be false? But there's more proof that the Bible offers because during these 40 days after the resurrection, it says that Jesus showed himself to many people. First of all, he shows up to Mary Magdalene, which, by the way, is kind of a crazy thing if you're going to make up a story. You don't, especially back in the ancient days, you don't tell a woman about this so that she can then spread it to everybody else. Because back in those days, a woman was not even allowed to testify in court. Why? Well, because they believed that she was hysterical. In fact, the Greek word hysterical comes from a uterus. That's The the word for uterus is hysterical. So when Mary tells the, the disciples that Jesus was alive, that she saw him, they thought she was hysterical. Folks, if you're going to make up a, a, an account, if, you, if you're going to deceive people and want them to believe your account back then, you don't, you don't use a woman to start telling people what the truth is because nobody would have believed her unless it was true. But there's more. After Mary tells the disciples about Jesus, Peter and John run to the tomb. They go to check it out for themselves. They see a massive stone rolled away. They look into the tomb, they see it empty. They see the grave clothes that have been wrapped around Jesus, neatly arranged with the head covering folded nicely to one side. They didn't know what to believe. John John said, "Oh, Jesus is alive." Peter not so sure, because I'm sure in his mind there could be a lot of explanations. Like for example, the body was stolen. Somebody came and stole the body. Well, who would do that? Well, there were grave robbers back then. It was a common thing, a fairly common thing for for people to go into cemeteries and, and raid tombs. But if that was the case here, grave robbers would not have taken the time to unwrap the body, which was being guarded by Roman soldiers, by the way, uh, that they, they would not have, have then taken time to fold the, the little head covering neatly and put, put it to one side. See, grave robbing was a capital offense. You didn't want to get caught because if you got caught robbing a grave, you were dead. Man, if you're going to pull off that kind of crime, it had to have been in and out and smash and grab, right? No loitering around to unwrap the body and to fold up the cloth. You, you, you take the body, you take it someplace else, and that's where you unwrap it. Grave robbers would not have done that. How, how, about, how about his, his enemies? Maybe, maybe they wanted to desecrate the body. Maybe, maybe they wanted it destroyed, any kind of evidence. So maybe they stole the body. But at that point, once the rumors of his resurrection began, wouldn't you just produce the evidence that he was still dead? Nah, his enemies didn't steal the body could it have been, Could it have been the disciples themselves? Well, they're pretty confused at this point. Uh, and, and again, if they had stolen the body and then concocted this story about how he r- rose from the dead, that does not explain how they would then live a martyr's life and, a, and die a martyr's death by going to their grave claiming something to be true that they knew themselves was not true. So as far as cover-ups go stealing the body, stolen body theory doesn't hold water. So some people then say, well, Jesus really didn't die on the cross. After being tortured and beaten up and and crucified, he really didn't die. Maybe he just passed out from blood loss. And, And when the Roman soldiers took him down, he was still breathing. He was still alive. And then when they put him in the tomb, the coolness of that excavated cave somehow revived him and gave him this strength not just to get up but to now move a two-ton rock and then overpower the guards outside now if you're going to believe that you have to forget about the spear that was thrust into Jesus' side that pierced his pericardium tissue around his heart that would have killed a man right then and there you will have to forget the fact that the Roman soldiers actually took Jesus' body down, gave it to some of his disciples to embalm. There are plenty of time to see that this man was still alive, maybe just barely, but still alive. Then the men would have wrapped him up in the, the, the cloths like a mummy and put so much spice on him. Then you'd have to believe that somehow, being revived in the coolness of the tomb, Jesus had enough strength, first of all, to unwrap himself, right? And then to, to clean himself up and then to find presentable clothing there in the tomb and then move the stone away and somehow either overpower or slip past the guards who would have been punished by death if they let the body go, by the way. Now you're, now you're just being silly, okay? Okay. Well, maybe it was a case of mass hallucination. (laughs) Yes, yes, Uh, a bunch of people together saw this sight of the resurrected Jesus. Or maybe it was somebody pretending to be Jesus uh, who was able to fool the crowd. Well, the problem with that is that there were way too many personal eyewitness accounts. In fact, it says in the Bible that Jesus showed himself at least 10 times to a different group of people each time. First to Mary Magdalene, then to to the other women there uh, that that would have followed him in his ministry, then to Peter, then to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, then to the eleven as they were, or minus Thomas up in the upper room, then to the eleven with Thomas there in the upper room, then over the Sea of Galilee um, where there were seven disciples in a boat, and then the disciples there as he would give the Great Commission uh, up on the mountaintop uh, outside of Galilee. And then we find out that he even showed up to James, his own half-brother. And in most of those cases, folks, Jesus did more than just appear like a hallucination, like a a vision. For example, Mary Magdalene was able to cling to him. And he said, not yet, not yet. Uh, He broke bread with the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. He ate with his disciples there in the upper room. Uh, And then when Thomas showed up, he invited Thomas to actually touch his hands and his feet and his side. There at the Sea of Galilee, he had sat down, he had cooked breakfast, and he ate with those disciples. And then finally, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus had appeared to over 500 people at one time. And that may be an additional Uh, time that he showed up or it may have just been when uh, he was giving them the commission to go out into all the world. Man, it would be crazy. It would be crazy to even imagine that the disciples understood what was going on so much that they would have made up this account because they didn't even know he was going to die. They had no clue about his resurrection. That's why Jesus felt like he needed to show many convincing proofs. See, they were sure of his death. They were so sure of his death, you could not see the bloody mess of Calvary. You could not experience the fear of being captured yourself without knowing that Jesus was dead, without a doubt, beyond denial. So Jesus wanted to give them then proof, just as much proof that he was alive as they had that he was dead It was not just a hopeful hallucination. This was really Jesus, who really had died, who was now showing them that he was really alive. With that truth in their corner, now there's power. Now there's power to gain courage, to speak out in boldness to what they knew to be true. Which brings me to my second point. Not only was there the resurrection reality, there's the resurrection results. Okay? Turn with me to one book over, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now, the passage that I'm getting ready to, to read to you is actually part of Paul's argument regarding grace. In the first part of the letter to the Romans, Paul is making a case that we all need grace. I mean, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, we all sin. We all fall short of God's glory, and we all need grace. So then, he's anticipating somebody coming up with an argument. Probably a middle schooler. I've worked with them, and they come up with some pretty uh, you, know, you know they question everything, right? It's like, oh, oh, so so grace is good. So we should just keep sinning so that we can get more grace. Isn't that great? Let's keep sinning. Yeah, and you just want to slap them. And so so Paul does in a figurative sense. Uh, He says here, he's speaking to that here in chapter 6, and then he gets into this whole um, death, burial, and resurrection implications. He says this, So, hey, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. There it is. There's a little slap. Like, "Don't, don't go there. We died to sin, he said. We died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, the whole idea behind the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is that he would become the first fruits, the first one, Out of the dead, the the, the one to conquer death so that we may have a passageway as well to eternal life. His resurrection means that the power of God, the dunamos, the dynamite power that we talked about in the book of Acts last year, is now available to us. So because of the resurrection, because he lives, we also live. In fact, the result of the reality of the resurrection for Paul was summed up like this in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. See, that's the result of the resurrection. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. He says, the life that I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans chapter 14, he said, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. That's our new reality. This is resurrection results. If you're alive today, you have to be counted as alive through Jesus. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth The living, right? Life is worth the living. Why? Because it's no longer I that live. Life is worth the living because he lives through me. That means, folks, that we are changed. Under new management, if you will. I love what Troy said in his meditation where he talks about, you know, getting frustrated because we're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. But you know what? You may not be there yet, but you're looking at it all wrong. Don't look at where all the place that you still have to go. Look behind you. You've been changed. Because Jesus is a part of your life, you are different now than what you used to be. I guarantee it. Why? Because God is for you. He wants to change you. He wants to recreate you through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Because Jesus is alive, He now lives within you and He changes us. He changes us. Yes, our eternity is changed, but our life here on earth is being changed as well. And so that then brings us to the third point, and that is that there is resurrection responsibility. If if the Holy Spirit truly is changing us, then we must begin to live in obedience to that change. See, it's significant when you read Acts 1-3. That not only does Jesus say, here's some convincing proofs that I'm alive. He then reminds them and speaks about the kingdom of God. Boy, the kingdom of God was one of Jesus' favorite things to teach about in his ministry. There were so many parables about, hints about what the kingdom of God was to be like, right? He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Starts out small. Yeah, really, truly smart. Starts out with the Son of God coming down. But eventually it will grow into this huge plant where all the birds of the air can come and find shelter in its, in its branches. Well, in the Jewish thought, the, the birds of the air were indicative, they were representative of all the nations of the world. The idea was that the kingdom of God would start small, but it eventually would cover the entire world and all nations would come to understand salvation, not just the Jews. He, he would say that the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure treasure in a field, and then he buries that treasure and then sells everything that he has to buy that field so that he would always retain that treasure. It was so precious. Jesus would also say that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Have you ever thought about that phrase? What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, it's it's an idiom that basically means the kingdom is here right now, getting ready to start. It's among you. Now that would have been confusing for the Jews because they thought that when the kingdom was going to come, it was going to be a physical, political kingdom, where a Messiah would come, kick out Rome, um, kick out all of the enemies, allow Israel to become the, the crown jewel again, and he would rule physically, politically from the seat of Jerusalem. So they'd say, sure, kingdom of kingdom is at hand. Let's go. Let's grab our swords. Let's let's overthrow the government. And Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the plan. Jesus would say that his kingdom was not of this world. Didn't say that it wasn't going to be in this world. He says it's not of this world, which meant it's not supposed to be political. It's about something inside of those who have put their trust in him. See, the kingdom of God is actually a paradox because, yes, the kingdom of God is there and then. A supernatural Non material world, somewhere out in our future, when Jesus comes and takes us to heaven. But, folks, the kingdom of God is also here and now. It's God ruling in your heart, it's you living out obedience to the, the direction and the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's the body of Christ, it's the church who live by the Spirit and work for God's kingdom, taking back the territory of the devil. Those who are bound in darkness. You see, the kingdom of God is you. The kingdom of God is you. The power of the church. A few verses later, Acts 1.8, Jesus would say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses then in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. The kingdom of God is you. You. The power of the church. The kingdom of God is your trust in God. It's the prayer of the church. Our reliance on the power of God's spirit to lead us and to guide us and to empower us to do what he's led us to do. The kingdom of God is your telling of the gospel. It's the preaching of the church. The sharing of the good news that God is for you. That he bridged the gap. That he took care of your sin problem. And now you can have a right relationship with your creator. The kingdom of God is your transformation by the gospel. It's the practice of the church as we live out God's principles in our life and show the reality of life transformation through the power of Jesus. Folks, the early church turned their world upside down. Why? Because they believed the resurrection. Many convincing proofs told them that what they believed was real. And then they understood that that reality meant something for them. It actually changed their purpose. Now they were supposed to be about expanding God's kingdom. Now they believe that they could do anything in Him, through Him, and for Him. Why? Because the thing that they feared the most, death, was now dead. It was crushed. Gone. The last enemy taken care of. You see now why this 40-day event is truly the most significant that we could ever study? It's because you and I are still part of that church. The resurrection still promises us power to follow Jesus, to make a difference in this world through Him and through God's rule. We've trusted Jesus as our Savior. We've made Him Lord, and that's why those 40 days mattered because the re- resurrection has reality, it has results, and for you and me as believers, it has responsibility. Gabe, if you and the worship team could come on up, as you do, I, I wanted to let you know that that was going to be the end of the sermon. I told my dad about what I was preaching, and he said, Oh, well, there's one more R. So if I go long, it's not my fault, it's, it's dad, okay? McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh, you remember him? Back in the 1990s, he was the one who uh, blew up the Murrah building, the uh, federal building in Oklahoma City. Nobody doubts his guilt. But do you realize that there was no witnesses? Nobody actually saw him load up the Ryder truck that he had rented with explosives. Nobody, Nobody witnessed him driving to the federal building and parking the truck there. Nobody watched him detonate the bomb. And yet, there was no doubt in people's minds 137 people took to, to, to the, uh, the witness chair to, to provide evidence against McVeigh. And he was convicted. Why? Well, because a businessman said, well, he rented the Ryder truck on this day. A, a friend of his says, yes, he was angry at the government and spoke of lashing out in some way and bombing something. A scientist said, we, we checked his clothing, and there was residue on his clothing, uh, residue of some explosive material. All of those things then added up to his being tried and, and convicted of the crime of blowing up the building. That residue on his clothing is what I really want to focus in on as we close today. Because residue, you know what residue is, right? It's, it's, it's when you have come into contact with something powerful, and it has left some kind of mark. Some kind of, it has left some evidence on you. Folks, when you look at the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it also has a residue. Resurrection residue. Thank you, Dad. You've come into contact with something powerful. That has rubbed off on you. You've drawn near to Jesus and now you're different. Something is different about you. And now you're actually rubbing off on other people. That's the resurrection residue. You you begin to to wonder, what am I going to leave behind in this world? What what kind of legacy am I going to leave? Folks, if you're a believer in Jesus, the residue that you leave can't just be about a good life. It's got to be about something more eternal than that. It's got to be about something more true than that about two weeks ago two or three weeks ago i found out that dc lundy who leads our worship service in the first service he had a field that that burned he was burning some uh, things in his pit and embers blew away and it just caught fire like that if you looked at the aftermath of that you could tell something happened because there was the residue of a fire Something that had burned bright, powerful. And DC told me after church today, he said, You know, not one person who has seen that has not asked the question, What happened? What happened? Folks, we are to live our life where people looked at us and say, Brock, what happened? You used to be like this, and now you're like this. What happened? Linda, what happened? Trevor, what happened? Really, really what happened? My goodness. Okay. What happened? We, we burned so brightly that we leave some kind of residue. What is your faith going to, to, to say about you? How is your faith going to affect your kids? How is your, your, your faith going to affect co- your grandkids? How is your faith going to impact your community? Are they just going to say, oh, you're a good guy, you're a good gal? Or are they going to say, boy, that person was a person of faith? And conviction. When you consider this aspect of Jesus' resurrection and the effect it has on you, you must understand there's a greater picture. His kingdom is far greater than anything that we could build in our own lives. And so, if we want to truly have an eternal impact, we must be living in the reality of the resurrection with the results of the resurrection. Taking on the responsibility of the resurrection so that we can leave the the residue of the resurrection as well as we validate the claim that because He lives, we live. And Jesus, our Messiah and Lord, is alive. Amen? You, You know I love you. I love serving as your pastor, and I'm so excited to see what happens when we get back together. And that'll happen in a couple weeks, I'm sure. Like I said, we've got some stuff that we have to to make sure that we do in compliance. But man, I know you're burning brightly right now, but you start to put these embers all together and watch out world. We get back together. There's no stopping us. That's my prayer for us today. Let, Let me pray and then we're going to finish by singing because he lives. Father God, thank you so much for giving us this amazing inspiration of knowing that you are alive Many convincing proofs show that you were alive, but you were alive for a purpose so that we might be alive, not just to go to heaven, but to change this world by living for you. May we catch fire, God, and may the ash that we leave behind cause people to say, What happened? And because of that, they then come to know the saving power of your Son, Jesus. We do serve a risen Savior, and we are so grateful for that fact. As we leave this. Uh, place here today. God, may we continue to shine brightly for you. I pray this in Jesus's name and all God's people said, amen.